0: If you are a mental health professional who wants to have a bigger impact on the world, help more people, and grow your business all at the same time, then you're in the right place. With every episode, we're here to help you discover new ideas, gain new insights, and get the step-by-step strategies that you need to grow your private practice with confidence. I'm Sarah Gershon, and along with my co-host, Howard Baumgarten, we welcome you to PsychVis. We're so glad you're here.
1: You know, Sarah managed care panels or otherwise known as insurance panels are so important in uh, the mental health world. They're controversial as well, because for a number of reasons, they can be difficult and tedious. They can be uh, low in the payment scale and just a challenge for practitioners. And I, I'd like for us today to kind of, talk a little bit about the value of managed care what are the pros and cons and really try to break down the importance of whether managed care is right for you the listener because for some people it is and for other clinicians it's not and i'd be interested in your perspective being that you work with so many different practice owners group practices and individual practices in terms of their website and i'm sure you've Garnered a lot of information from them about their relationship or non relationship with managed care or otherwise known as insurance panels?
0: Yeah, it's a huge issue. And it's a hard decision for a lot of people to make because there are pros and cons on both sides of the issue. Um, And there are things that are easier when you're on insurance panels, and then there are things that are much easier when you're not. So I think that it is a very individualized decision. I don't think that there's just one right answer. Um, But I do think that there is information that's relevant to everyone and there are reasons that you know you would choose one versus the other and so really having a clear understanding of what are the pros what are the cons um can help you kind of figure out you know what the right choice is for you and also that the right choice for you right now might not be the right choice for you five years from now and so having that kind of clarity of feeling, okay right now i want to take this approach but i know long term it will make more sense for me to kind of move in a certain direction And that can be really helpful to know, you know, if, for example, if you know that, all right, right now I'm going to be on insurance panels, but five years, 10 years from now, I don't want to be. So that's really powerful information to know because you can start setting yourself up now to have a really good foundation so that when you do want to make that transition, you're ready and you can do it in a really empowered way.
1: It's interesting because what you're talking about has literally happened in the development process of my practice. And so if I may, I'll talk about yeah. my own, yeah, my own process. When I very first got into private practice, I found a little ad in a newspaper by the way. This was back when really the internet hadn't really been the primary source of job hunting or opportunity searching. I found a tiny ad in a newspaper looking for a clinician and it said, interested in private practice. And so I contacted the phone number and it was a group practice, a rather large one here in Colorado that was contracted with numerous managed care or insurance panels that was looking for a clinician to bring on. And at the time it was probably one of the largest group private practices. So I joined them and they actually got me credentialed with the managed care panels. They were very poorly run in so far as the billing specialists were incapable of managing that much billing and could not follow up with the insurance companies. And so the organization was very much in the red financially and there were tons of administrative systems that were not in place that were not effective enough. So one of the things I want to mention off the bat is if you are a group practice or even an individual practitioner, you're going to want to make sure you have really smart systems in place that are effective at credentialing, getting referrals, and especially billing. And we're going to talk about getting on managed care panels and in another episode, probably the very next episode after this. But so to go back to my story, we I had joined this practice and within eight months, the practice went bankrupt. And I could feel it within about two months of being in the practice. I filled up really quickly. Uh, I was not making a lot of money because the practice itself was taking a much larger cut than it probably should have. One of the poor systems in place, in my opinion, not good for retention. And um, the biggest thing is they were losing money. And so I got out before and was able to barely get my money. Most of the practitioners lost all of their money that was owed to them. And I felt very bad for them about that. Many of them called me after I had left and said, how did you get your money? And I told them exactly what I did in order to um, be able to get, I got out early enough, number one, but before the money had run out. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I basically told them. So So, really, um, being on a managed care panel, it has to be run systemically and appropriately. If you're not good at it, hire somebody who is, okay? The second thing is back when I got on managed care, it was the early 2000s. It was like 2000, 2001. And back then there were a lot of what were called health maintenance organizations. Now, otherwise known as an HMO, most of the HMOs are gone these days and they've been replaced by PPOs and EPOs. We'll get into all that terminology in the next episode, but basically HMO meant that it was a highly managed plan um, for the consumer and you needed referrals. And in the mental health world, it meant literally getting like a group of sessions and then having to contact a case manager or what was called a, a managed care manager, a care manager to get more sessions. So a lot of folks that think about insurance hear the stories of the way insurance used to run. You do not have to do that anymore, with the exception of maybe one or two very special circumstance cases. Are you hearing any of this with your clinicians that you're working with?
0: Well, so I'm hearing something slightly different, um, which is that some of my clients are making the choice not to work with managed care. Um, in part because it requires a medical diagnosis. And you can correct me if there's something that I say that I'm hearing from my clients that, you know, you have a different experience. But basically their concern is that, you know, depending on the population of people that you work with, first of all, there might not be a specific diagnosis that you feel actually is appropriate. Um, And receiving therapy can be supportive in a variety of situations. It doesn't necessarily have to be in response to a specific diagnosis number one. and number two, even if there is a specific diagnosis, some people feel um, ethically that it can be problematic to share that information with an insurance company. And so instead what they do because of their own you know feelings is that they, on request will provide information to the client that the client can then choose to submit to insurance or not. Um, And that they feel puts the power in the patient's hands rather than giving that information to an insurance company so that it goes on some sort of record um, and is in, you know, out of the client's control, basically who's seeing that.
1: That's a great point, Sarah. The point you just made is really sort of, um, a, on the on the pro side for not being on insurance or the con side for being on insurance. And yes, you are absolutely correct that for a variety of reasons, clinicians ethically maybe, let's say, decide not to be on the panel because they have to submit a diagnosis in order for to get reimbursement. And oftentimes they're not necessarily coming in, the patient isn't coming in or the client isn't coming in for that particular diagnosis. Case in point, couples therapy, you have to, you have to diagnose one of the two individuals in couples therapy with a a clinical axis one diagnosis or, or a, a clinical diagnosis of which you're likely not really treating primarily, you're treating the relationship. And so, Uh, You know, for for some people, they treat couples outside of managed care, and they modify their contracts with managed care so that they know that they're they're allowed to treat couples outside of their policy that they're contracted with, or they don't do managed care at all. Um, And that's one reason. Another reason might be uh, uh, for staying away from managed care might be uh, the compensation. That even though there's free marketing and, you know, you're getting it's not free, but you're getting marketing for a a lesser reimbursement rate. For many, the reimbursement rate is is too low. And one of the things as a business person that I highly recommend is that if you are getting referrals by word of mouth or from other sources other than directly managed care companies, uh, unless you value the idea of working with those who are insured in, in a way that's kind of why I work with managed care. I don't have to work with managed care at this point, but I partly do because uh, for individuals, because I very much value trying to serve some, at least some of the population who, um, who work with or who want to use their insurance. And, um, and that to me is, is an ethical sort of responsible value as I get older and I've put my dues in and it's changing. I'm going off of the managed care companies. So to go back to my original story, uh, I know it's so funny we get sidetracked, right? (laughs) Um, But as I go back to my original story, I got into a group practice that had a ton of managed care companies. And so I never really had to worry about marketing. I mean, this was before the days of websites and directories and social media. I mean, none of this, this was how it was done. And in fact, very few people back in 2000 were able to have successful practices outside of managed care, um, meaning outside of working with what they call in-network with insurance companies. So lo and behold, I ended up leaving that practice because I could see that it was you know, dying. And I joined a group practice that had barely had any relationship with managed care in the sense that they had two or three managed care companies. And instead of moving away from managed care, I, w- I went to the owner and suggested that I help the two owners build more managed care presence and diversify. And we did that. And they allowed me to take on a, a partial administrative role and help them build their business. It's now one of the largest in Colorado. I left left that company in 2010. Um, but the, the, the key was about diversification and doing it intelligently. And so, um, you know, that piece became a really great learning experience. And then when I went into my own practice in 2010, broke away from the group and ended my relationship with that group, um, I grew other parts of my practice that were outside of managed care. And I had what accidentally became what I would call a hybrid practice. And a hybrid practice is some in-network managed care contracts and some non-contracted fee-for-service, Services that I offer.
0: And I think that's a really smart approach. And I think that, you know, there are some people who are going to choose not to use managed care at all. Um, but for those who are going to use it, I really do suggest them taking that kind of hybrid approach because you just want to have that kind of diversity in where you're getting your income from and where you're kind of getting the base of your practice from. Because if you become over reliant on any one source, then that's problematic and just we talk about that in marketing too you know if you're getting all of your clients from referrals and from word of mouth that's problematic because you know word of mouth is wonderful and it can feel kind of magical because you get people calling you and you're like I have no idea who you are and you already want to work with me and that's fabulous but just like you can't make those people call you they just kind of call you and because someone else is doing something. So you can't ensure that, that whatever that thing is, keeps happening. And so you don't want to be over-reliant on word of mouth. It's great okay. to have word of mouth, but then what's your secondary stream of clients coming from? In the same way, it's great to have managed care, but then what is your secondary stream? What, where are the other clients coming to you from? So that if for whatever reason, the managed care stops working for you, then you don't want to be in a situation where you've become so over reliance on it that then your practice is in a really tough spot.
1: Right. So what we're talking about are really three different main models here. We're talking about managed care only where everything you do is through insurance. And there are still many practitioners who do that. They, those folks are characterized by having to do very little, if any, marketing, even though some may still do some. Um, But, they serve on these managed care panels. One of my colleagues, actually, who's been a 35-year veteran, who I hope we're going to have on the show soon, um, she's primarily only worked with managed care and she loves it. She doesn't have to market herself much. She uh, sh- she likes working with insurance and it really works well for her. So that's one practice model. Um, the hybrid model we just talked about. And Uh, One thing I'll say about that is if you're going to choose or wind up in a hybrid model, what's super important is that you are practicing within the guidances of your contract. Because if your contract stipulates certain types of clients that you can and can't see under insurance, you you must not violate your contractual agreement with the managed care company. And it's important that then you review those contracts before you sign them so that you can modify them appropriately or find a loophole that is legally or basically policy-wise you're able to do that if it's in the name of what's ethically responsible for your client. That's my, that's my general advice about a hybrid model. The nice thing also about a hybrid model, is you mentioned, you're not relying on one source for marketing you are you're really diversified and the one thing i'll tell you about a hybrid that is also va- valuable and it, it really happened with me you don't you you don't want to set all that up at all at once really in a lot of ways the the private pay client sort of becomes the extra uh, the extra to your bread and butter and then you start to develop programs that fall outside of managed care And you, you kind of step yourself into this hybrid model. So most people don't, don't wake up one day and say, oh, I'm going to set up a hybrid model. Some people do, but, uh, I think it's more of a, what are my opportunities? Um, what's going to help me diversify and what are my values? Those are the things, you know, my, my, my values about working with managed care. And then finally the third area would be a practice that is free from managed care, free from working with insurers. You mentioned something earlier that I want to reinforce to the listener, and that is the notion that you, when you're not working in contract with Managed Care, meaning you're in their network, you as a practitioner can offer what's called a super bill and give your client a bill, a paid receipt that actually has the CPT code on it or whatever the, the, the code for the, uh, the type of service you've given and just some, some, uh, information like the date of birth, the diagnosis. Um, but you're, you do have to put a diagnosis on there in order for the client to submit. Okay. So make sure it is a diagnosis that is treatable and that you're being honest, whatever that diagnosis is, whether the insurance company pays or not is between your client and the insurance company. And so, there is a couple's relational problem diagnosis that insurance won't pay for in network. And sometimes they will or won't out of network. It depends. So there's that piece that you can offer and many do, and many folks offer a sliding scale so that they can reduce their fees a little bit from their main fees, um, based on their, in their client's income and, and as a strategy to help the client, you know, to help subsidize their therapy a little bit.
0: Absolutely. And there are so many reasons that a person might choose one versus the other, but I think that it's important to validate the fact that as a therapist, it's okay for you to say, it is better for me to work with fewer clients and get a higher rate by not working within managed care. And that, that is the way that I want to function as a therapist, because you're going to give, you know, for those people who feel that way, they're going to give a higher quality of care to the clients that they are seeing, and they're going to be able to have a higher quality of life. And that that is not the choice that everyone's going to make, but I want to say that it is a completely legitimate approach and that therapists should feel that that is something they can do if they feel like it's the right fit for them. And there's a lot of reasons why, you know, not working with managed care can really put you in a better position to, you know, grow your practice, focus on the things that, you want to focus on, have less paperwork, have all kinds of stuff that is going to be beneficial to you and in the long run, also to your clients.
1: Here's, here's my two cents on, on the two. And I love what you said. Here's my two cents, not um, non-managed care, meaning I'm not going to work with any managed care and I'm going to be all fee for service. Uh, Those folks tend to be people who like doing things like their own marketing, They, you're, you know, and if they don't, they, they, they have the funds to be able to pay for their own marketing and their, you know, because here's the thing I'm going to say, and that is that folks who want to do less, you know, like maybe work with 20 clients a week or 15 clients a week, but make $150 an hour, $175 an hour, you'll have more time to focus on the administration parts and maybe other things like if you want to write a book or you want to do seminars or, you know, this type of thing. Okay. So. Folks that want to do those kinds of things typically will go more on the direction at some point in their career in of getting off of managed care or not working in managed care at all. Managed care folks, again, nothing wrong with it, but managed care folks, um, people who like to work in network, um, they really just like the work of seeing clients and they don't want to have to worry about all this other stuff. And they like it so much that they'd like to be seeing 25 plus clients a week. You know, I know folks that work with managed care, they want to see 35, 40 clients a week. It's exhausting. I don't know how folks can do that. That's not my style. I'm a, I'm more of a 25 to 32, you know, a week. And that's a lot for me. And there was a point in time where I was seeing a lot more in the beginning of my practice. And it was really hard. So for everybody, it's, I I loved your point about, you know, whatever you do, it's important for you to do for you. And there's no tried and true way that, you know, is the thing to do. Um, case in point to, to just wrap up our session today, I'll wrap up the story I started telling, which is I was headed toward about five years ago, I was headed toward, you know, I wrote my book five years ago. I was going around the country and doing trainings on building bi- private practice business. And then I developed my research area in the area of compassion fatigue awareness for, for healthcare professionals and other businesses burnout prevention, and going into companies. And so I was doing doing a lot of that. And and I still want to go back to doing it. But as soon as the pandemic hit, it changed everything. And I felt this draw to want to go back and serve my community more. And um, I ended up increasing my, I was seeing maybe 22 clients a week at that point. And now I'm back up to seeing 32. I, I rejoined a couple Companies that I had terminated my relationship with seven eight years ago, um, you know, and and a lot of that had to do with where was my heart, where was where was I drawing? You know, my community needed me, and um, and uh, the larger community of going into businesses and colleges and and you know facilities and whatnot ended. You know, it's coming back and it will, but. So we direct ourselves and make our changes based on what's going on in life. And so that's something to pay attention to. And I, I, I don't want to end this session without saying that because it's a really individualized experience that has a lot to do it with our relationship to the, the people that we work with, our community, our clients, and those, we, those that we serve.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So that is the value of do I work with managed care or not? I want to encourage you to contact Sarah or I, because we have this unique perspective of having, you know, I work in it as a clinician and a practice owner. And Sarah has the privilege and honor of working with so many different practitioners uh, all over the world, actually. um, And primarily in the United States in terms of their practices. And, you know, she has a unique lens. So, I I want to encourage you to to send us feedback, ask us questions, and we'd be happy to assist you in, in your journey of this important decision of, do I work with managed care? And if so, what type of relationship? Which brings me to my last point, and that is that next session, next episode, uh, we're going to talk all about the specifics of getting on managed care and really working with managed care. So we'll do a, how's that sound, Sarah? A, a, a that sounds great. Yeah. 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 There's I'll, a lot I'll, of
0: technical details and right. all kinds of stuff. That's really helpful to kind of know and, and, and walk through.
1: Right. And I'll, I'll try to do a little bit of a like a, a good dive into the steps and how to get credentialed and, and in dealing with reimbursement and things like that. And we'll, you know, we'll kind of, we'll kind of see where it goes. We hope you found today's episode thought-provoking and helpful. We'd love to know what you think, so leave us a comment and don't forget to subscribe. You can find the show notes and additional resources at psychbiz.com. Thank you for listening.